Well, that was a fun episode of Deeper Magic, Anna. I know for the people that are going to be listening here in just a moment, we covered our first sort of extended segment on mental health, and we ended up talking about things through the lens of your Harry Styles experience in Edinburgh, which was pretty emotional. You cried through most of this upcoming episode. I was just going to say, yeah, about mental health, I spent most of this episode in tears on and off talking about Harry Styles and kind of the emotional hangover of that last night, and then talking about living a life of comparison and burnout and learning how to choose rest and priorities and the and all of the sacrifice that that brings in as well. Yeah, it was a fun episode uh, to just talk about getting off of the comparative train, the assessment train, as one helpful tool to start bringing a little bit of health back to the way we experience the world. So thanks for listening, everybody, to Deeper Magic and enjoy the upcoming episode. You're listening to Deeper Magic. Hey, everyone. This is the Deeper Magic. I am Peter, and I am with my daughter, Anna. Say hi, Anna. Hi, Anna. (laughs) This is a podcast in which we talk about all things uh, spiritual, not necessarily religious, and uh, just recognize that there is a deeper reality in this world. And Anna, part of even what you have in a book that you've been reading, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. It was Barbara Brown Taylor. Is that the name of the author that you're reading right now? Yeah, I actually think that's really funny because when we were going through our outline, we didn't say that we were necessarily going to cover it. So I left it in the other room. Oh, good. So okay. Well, so I'll just have to riff for a little bit and monologue. But yeah. I, I think, it, you know, no. she is, she's a pretty reliable author. And I think that... Um, I have some friends that really lean into her as somebody who talks a little bit about breaking down this distinctive between the religious environments in which we find ourselves and the spiritual journey on which we find ourselves. And I think a lot of people these days are not necessarily as interested in being part of a fairly rigid religious environment, but they're very interested in spiritual things. And and then that spiritual, whatever qualifies in that category of spiritual, uh, Anna, is more than just learning about scripture, although it includes that. And it's more than just studying theological history, though it includes that. It, it can be uh, reflections on such things as Harry Styles concerts that you were just at. Yeah. Uh, you are in Scotland as we speak. So you're coming to us mm-hmm. live from Edinburgh. And, uh, and you just, am. you're a little, you're not hung over because you weren't drinking, I assume, at the Harry Styles right. concert, but you're hung over just because it was a long night. You didn't go to Mentally, sleep until like emotionally, yeah, yeah, physically, yeah. like, yeah. I said um, earlier, just before we started recording, I said, I feel like I got hit by a bus, like <laughs> totally. mentally and physically. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah. And I can't wait to hear more about the concert. So today uh, with our episode today, we'll, we'll cover a little bit of what, what you've been reading, a, a new book that you picked mm-hmm. up about the difference between religion and, and spirituality. Reflect on this Harry Styles experience that you've been anticipating for quite some time. And then we'll cover one topic within mental health. And we'll talk about the importance of not living a comparative life. I know the mental health conversation is such a big one, and we're just going to try to take it slowly, mm-hmm. one thing at a time, maybe not even every week. But I had some really good conversations here in Minnesota around the bonfire last night with some young pastoral people uh, that are 23, 24 years old and just about anxiety, depression and this comparative life. So looking forward to the episode. But you've got a quote uh, you're going to read from Barbara Brown. It's Barbara Brown Taylor, right? I I confess I haven't Mm -hmm. read her. I just know people that really trust her in in her voice in this. So. Uh, you picked up this book recently for class or just cause? Um, yeah, so I picked it up for class and it is, it's Barbara Brown Taylor. The book is An Altar in the World. Okay. Um, 
And I was introduced to a chapter of this book in one of my classes um, where the class, like, genre, I guess, is contemporary Christian issues. Um, And we, it was specifically a storytelling class. And so everything that we read, everything that we talked about, everything that we watched, because it's, like, not just reading as storytelling, but also movies and music and whatever, um, we talked about through the lens of how story can be healing or can be broken and how we come at that from a faith perspective. It was a brilliant class. It was like a combination of faith and literature, which I love. Yeah, that's great. Um, And so we read a part of this book just on a PDF or whatever for this class. And then I loved the book so much that I went out and bought it because I was like, I want to read this whole thing. But the thing that she says about being spiritual, but not religious, um, is where did it go? She said, it may be the name for a longing, uh, spirituality. Yeah. It may be a name for a longing for more meaning, more feeling, more connection, more life. When I hear people talk about spirituality, that seems to be what they are describing. They know there is more to life than what meets the eye. They have drawn close to this more in nature, in love, in art, and in grief. They would be happy for someone to teach them how to spend more time in the presence of this deeper reality, but when they visit the places where such knowledge is supposed to be found, they often find the rituals hollow and the language antique. Hmm, read that last part again, because I think if I'm understanding correctly, what she mm-hmm. is suggesting is that there is this deep longing and even, I think, instinct and awareness that we know there's yeah. something more than just sort of the frivolity of our lives or the success of our jobs or the growth of our family or whatever it is. But then we go to try to find a way to live within that more. And we end up in certain kinds of environments that then feel hollow and and don't really intersect with that more that we're longing for. So that'd be my understanding. But that last, I think those last two sentences were really interesting. Or so if you don't mind reading those again. Yeah, she says they would be happy for someone to teach them how to spend more time in the presence of this deeper reality, but when they visit the places where such knowledge is supposed to be found, they often find the rituals hollow and the language antique. And then she says, um, further down as well, she says, no one longs for what he or she already has, and yet the accumulated insight of those wise with the spiritual life suggests that the reason so many of us cannot see the red X that marks the spot is because we are standing on it. The treasure we seek requires no lengthy expedition, no expensive equipment, no superior aptitude or special company. All we lack is the willingness to imagine that we already have everything we need. The only thing missing is our consent to be where we are. My life depends on ignoring all distinctions between the secular and the sacred, the physical and the spiritual, the body and the soul. What is saving my life now is becoming more fully human, trusting that there is no way to God apart from real life in the real world. Yeah, see, I think this actually, Anna, uh, unbeknownst to us, that Mm. uh, I think that this is going to tie in really nicely to our conversation coming up in a little bit about mental health and the comparative game and how we how we live in that. One of the comments that the person said last night was that we always are looking at other people in other situations and assume that we're missing out, that we yeah. don't measure up. And so that creates the sense of angst and, 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 and anxiety, depression. And what she is suggesting in that is 
that we already are living within the realities of what can bring our heart peace. Now we can grow in that and we need to learn and mm-hmm. discover and, and God's kingdom, there's always more to do, but uh, or more to discover, but that doesn't mean that we're not whole in the moment. And I think so often we think, well, I will be whole if I can just look like that person or get to that experience. And yeah. so this comparative game is so is so insidious. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, again, we can talk about this more later, but even some of my own personal experiences with the competitive game growing up in dance and then in musical theater later had like so drastically warped my perception of myself and my life and and what I was capable of and the good in my life um, that that I ended up in some really dark places because of that. Um, and maybe weirdly, I, I want to be clear here and say that I don't think social media has helped that. Um, but in my own life, I so far have not struggled with social media in terms of a comparative thing. Um, because I was experiencing that for so long outside of a social media capacity and I've worked so hard to get out of that, um, that more where I struggle with that whole comparison thing is in my real life situations with real life people, because we hear so often with social media that it's all fake and it's not real and it's just the highlights of everybody's lives and whatever, that it's actually relatively easy for me to look at social media and be like, oh, that's cool, or I wish I was doing that, or they look like they're having a great time, but there's so much more going on in their life than just that. And it's really hard to look at somebody when I'm sitting across the counter from them or across the table from them, or I'm having a conversation with them, or I'm working on a project with them. And it's really hard to look a real person in the eyes and and feel like I'm missing out or I'm not doing enough. Um, and, and to know that that's not the case, but it's a lot harder to convince myself of that when I'm looking at a real person than when I'm just looking at a screen. Yeah. I think that's really well said. And I think all generations actually struggle with that. That is like some, sometimes people pin anxiety and depression more on your generation or your age groups Mm -hmm. or your categories, but it's, it's increasingly pervasive. So I would, I would love to, in a couple of minutes, we'll just pick that thread up again and maybe even read that last part of what you said uh, or what Barbara Brown Taylor has to say uh, about just living in in the now. But before we do, like speaking of living in the now, we do at least have to talk a little bit about Harry Styles, which am I a bad dad? And you, we've driven a lot in the car together. Am I, am I a bad dad that as I sit here right now, I still Mm -hmm. can't name a single Harry Styles song. Now that doesn't mean I haven't liked Mr. Styles because you've right. played his music and I've been like, this is it. This is decent. It's, you know, I, I was so skeptical about Taylor Swift and now I can see that she's quite the musician and, and Harry Styles much the same way, but I can't name a single song of Harry Styles, but you clearly can. And you are part of a massive Glaswegian mosh pit outside last night. It was what it looked like to me in the short yeah. video that you sent me. I mean, it was quite the concert. It was in Glasgow, right? No, it wasn't. It was actually in Edinburgh. Oh, it was in uh, Edinburgh. I thought you took the, the bus amazing. to Glasgow. Okay, even better yet. <laughs> so you're in yeah. Edinburgh. It's Harry Styles. You're with two of your very good friends. What was what was it like last night? So I have two things to say about that. First of all, um, I think it's hilarious that you think that this is going to be two minutes because actually, and I'm glad that you get to find this out live. This is a Harry Styles podcast now. You don't have a choice. <laughs> We're no longer talking about spirituality. We're talking about Harry Styles. Really? Everybody you- get or this is a rebrand. So you, um, <laughs> so you become that much of a fan girl in 24 hours. 
oh, no, I've been this much of a fangirl the whole time. We just had to start the podcast platform and uh, then I was going to hijack it. I appreciate the bait and switch. Okay. So I, by the end of this little rant montage or whatever you're about to do with Harry Styles, mm-hmm. my goal is that I can at least name one Harry Styles song so that I can participate in this in this new podcast. So so tell me about the experience last night. Yeah. Um, gosh. Oh, the other thing is about you not being able to name Harry yeah. Styles songs. Have I said that, that yet? That is not a failure of you as a dad. That is a failure as me of a me as a daughter. Thank you. That is my bad. Thank I you. should I'm so sorry Thank that you. you have been deprived of this I forgive and we you. will fix that. I forgive you. Um because you have no idea what you've been missing. Um so first of all, um I went with really two of the people who are the most important in me or most important to me in the whole world. Um, I went with my best friend of what, almost 20 years now, which is wild. Um, and then my wonderful friend Daisy, who we've brought up a lot on the podcast, Daisy and I, um, were in different sections, but we met up before the show. And then she and I went out for mocktails afterwards, actually crazy little side note when we were at our little like local bar that she and i go to we know all the bartenders Yeah, because what's that place called again daisy has taken us there a ton of times yeah um she's not taking you there if she has i'm mad about it what what is the name oh no not the basement it's the other one oh got it okay the one that i want to take you guys to but that you haven't been to yet got it um but while we were there last night um harry styles pianist was there what? Yeah. He came in while we were sitting That's there with a so friend of cool. his. And okay. they just sat there and had drinks for like an hour and a half. Um, and Daisy went over at one point and just really quietly was like, thank you for the show. You were wonderful. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, like, and he was really lovely too. Cause I imagine as like Harry Styles pianist, you don't get recognized very much. Um, but obviously you're like an essential part of the show and everything. Um, and so like, she just had a little chat with him and he was so nice. And, but it was just so bizarre. That's like, so we were cool. just sitting there and we were like, we saw you on stage like two hours ago. That's so weird. Um, but yeah. Okay. So the show itself, um, we, Lily and I got there about five hours ahead of time. You did. Um, which is like, it sounds like a lot. But when you realize that people had been queuing to get in more than 24 hours ahead of time, like we got there late compared to everybody else. Well, Um, you called on your way and I said, you guys are losers. You should have like got out the tents and been in the queue for a week. If you're true Harry Styles fangirls, you should have been out there in a tent. It was it was unbelievable. And like. We as we were walking through the queue or like sitting in the queue or whatever, we could see like bags of blankets and food and change of clothes for and whatever sure. from people who have been there for days. Because was there um, assigned seats or was it just you get in there and you get as close to the stage as you can? I guess I'm I'm not clear why people mm-hmm. were queuing that way. Yeah, so he played in Murrayfield Stadium. Yeah, that's a big um, stadium, and so it's a huge stadium. Um, yeah, and so. There was assigned seating for parts of it, but when you're on the floor, they call it standing here. Yeah, and so for you're sure. either in front standing or in rear standing. And then there were, there was the pit and Bishopsgate and Hollywood, which um, Bishopsgate and Hollywood are references to one of his songs. Um, What's the name of the song? 
I think it's in Late Night Talking. Okay, that's the one I remember. Says, yeah, he says from Hollywood to Bishop's Gate. Um, and so those are like the three that are surrounding the stage. Okay. Um, and then you have front standing, which is right behind that, and then rear standing, which is behind that. And are most um, of the people your age that listen to Harry Styles? Yeah, usually. Yeah, so this um, is a your I generation mean, thing. Okay. Yeah, and especially because um, I actually, I don't know that you know this. Maybe you do. Um, but he was in One Direction. That was how we oh. got to start. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, who's the other One Direction kid? There's somebody I mean, there else. Were four. Yeah, <laughs> four others. <laughs> okay, but there's somebody else that made a, a solo career. Does uh, it start with an N? Yeah, Nile. Nile. Yeah. So when I when I uh, did the when I was a marshal for the Ryder Cup at Hazeltine, he was part of um, the celebrity tournament before the start of the Ryder Cup. What? So when I was running the ropes on the first hole of the Ryder Cup, he came up and he was yeah he was he hit a shot into the green and so they did this big celebrity tournament and I thought oh that's that guy from One Direction I did not oh, know hilarious. so I knew his name but I did not know quite frankly that Harry Styles was part of One yeah. Direction so okay so carry on yeah you're at the concert so it's five hours early start. yep um and he then took off in his own solo career um and he has done just a fantastic job but part of the reason why then his demographic is like women probably from about 14 or 15 until like early thirties at this point is because a lot of the women in the older range of that group have known him since they were kids, have known him since they were teenagers. They grew up with one direction. And then when he did his solo career, they then went off with Harry Styles. Um, But yeah, so we, it was funny because I sent, mom a video of where we were standing because we got really close to like a corner of the stage and actually had a really good view um and when I sent mom the video she texted me back and she said there is not a single man there and I was like oh yeah when I told you that this is the one concert that I would feel safe going to by myself as a young woman in a foreign country I meant it that's so I meant it this was the one concert that that is, and that's so because when your mom and I went to the pink concert, I felt much the same way. I think I was the only mm-hmm. dude, but in this case, it was a lot of angry thirty-nine to fifty-six-year-old women that I was at the XL yeah. Energy Center with for pink, <laughs> which I love the conference. But I was like, oh, yeah. oh, like don't I like I get it. There's reasons to be angry, and men are total knuckleheads at, at times. And I get the fractures between men and women. Just don't like all nineteen thousand of you in the XL right now with me being the one dude. Please don't be mad at me, right? Now I'm just here yep. to enjoy Pink's concert, which was brilliant. Okay, so it's it's you oh, yeah. and 15, 20, 25,000 ish other 15 oh. to 35 year old women. Is it more than that? 40,000? No. So many more. It, 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 is, it is a big stadium. I think the capacity of the stadium is 68,000. 68,000. Um, <laughs> yeah. Women from 15 to 35. This is great. Okay. It was unbelievable it was so good and the opener was great because what what was the reaction when he came out on stage was it just absolutely bonkers oh my gosh so the way that he did it was um bohemian rhapsody is always the last song that he plays before he comes out on stage okay um like the the last song that they play in the stadium before his set starts um and so everybody was screaming along to bohemian rhapsody and then they have this like little instrumental bluebird song that gets played um and it is a reference to one of his songs um and they played that for like ages and so we were all sitting there and we were like what is going on why is it taking so long and then he came out 
and the whole place just absolutely lost their minds. Like I it was can unbelievable. I didn't know that I could scream like that. Like I didn't know that I had the lung capacity to be that loud. Um, and like genuinely by the time we left, I couldn't hear anything and my voice was completely gone. Um, but as well, what's one... so, but what causes that? Like I grew up after the mm-hmm. Beatles. So, but I would see yeah. often footage of Ringo and John and Paul and whoever else is all part of the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> I guess there's only one more that I'm missing, but, uh, the Beatles and, and young women would just like from the pit of whatever is that, that deep instinctive mm-hmm. place, they would just scream and scream and scream. So why were you, why were you screaming? Yeah, I don't know what it would be about for other artists. Like, I I think for me, it's different for each artist. For me with Harry Styles, it was... Um, his music has had such a profound emotional impact on my life. And um, I don't think yeah, you're alone. Sorry. So th- no, and this is what's important here, Anna, and this is part of why I think we need to keep talking about this Harry Styles, yeah. is that I think that people in some of these religious environments like the church have absolutely zero idea, like literally less oh, than yeah. zero idea. We just got done saying there was 68 68,000-ish people, young women, uh, all the way through maybe the age of 35. Again, roughly, there's other people, of course, in the stadium, but that's the general oh, yeah. demographic. And they're having profound emotional experiences in a way that shapes how they understand, walk in, live in, relate in this world. And it's having a much bigger impact than anything that's going on in these these religious environments, uh, if they even attend those environments at all. Like I just, that is so important to just stop and recognize and wonder about that you are willing to travel 6,000 miles or whatever it is to Edinburgh to mm-hmm. see, not only to see Harry Styles, obviously, you know, Edinburgh is a big part right. of our or life. other things. But it was a no-brainer for you to go at that time because Styles was there. And we're, again, 60, and that's just one stadium on one mm-hmm. constant tour. So now we extrapolate that out to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of yeah. young women in your age demographic whose life is being shaped in this world, much more so than anything in any kind of religious environment where you can walk into some churches and there's maybe six young women that are 25 yeah. years old. So anyway, carry on. I, I don't have any like, like analysis of that at this time. I think it's mm-hmm. just really noteworthy to note it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, okay. So part of it for me is that his music has had such an emotional impact on my life. I love it. Um, and like from a fun, more surface, like lighthearted place, I just love his music. I think it's fun. I think it's great to listen to. And then there have been songs that have like deeply affected me. I'm getting emotional just talking about it. Right. Um, like really, truly profound songs. Um, and even like, when I was living here last year, when I was living in Edinburgh last year and I was in my finals and then uh, packing up to move home and like saying goodbye to all of my friends, that was when um, his most recent album, uh, Harry's House, that was when that album came out. Um, And I just listened to it on repeat, like, for three weeks straight. It was, it was unbelievable. It's still my favorite album of his. 
Um, but I think one of the most, like, I'm trying to figure out how I want to articulate this, but I think one of the most profound and, like, wonderful things about Harry Styles and why he, like, has the love that he has, um, from, from his fans, um, is that, like, this tour that he's on right now, he's been touring since 2020, I believe, or 2021. It probably would have been 21 just because of COVID. So I'm guessing that he probably couldn't tour again until, yeah, 2021 or or a little later. Well, yeah, because I was supposed to see him in 2020 and then it got canceled because of COVID. Um, Yeah, so it would have been 2021. Um, And this tour has been called Love on Tour. That's what it is. Um, And his whole, like, he came out, he played his opening song and then he did one more and then he paused and he was like, okay, before we go any further. Um, and it was just this really lovely moment where he kind of looked at all of us and he was like, this is a spot for you all to just exist, for you all to just come be and celebrate and be happy and be in community and sing and dance and laugh and do whatever you need to do. Cry if you have to, but like, this is a place where you are held and you just get to be who you are. Um, and it was just, it's such an unbelievable thing. And I think especially as a young woman, just in the world, um, but also as a young woman in the church, we are not often given permission to just exist. Right. Um, and, and he has done such a phenomenal job of cultivating spaces like that in his music, in his tours, in his performances, in his fan base, um, for everybody, not just young women. Um, yeah, where you just get to come be and it's just a place to sit and be happy and be who you are. Um, and, and it's really, it's wonderful and you can feel it in the air. Um, one of my favorite moments of last night is he has a song called fine line uh which is also the name of one of his albums um and in the chorus of fine line he says uh will be all right and he played it last night and let me tell you there is nothing i've never experienced anything like this before and i don't think i ever will again yeah you were telling Standing me about in this a stadium yeah. of sixty-eight thousand people all of us singing will be all right like I don't know what to call that other than a really profound spiritual experience. For sure. Well, and, and I think like when you told me that story, that was the only thing that you told me about the concert prior to us coming live on, on deeper magic here. And I've been thinking about that a bit and picturing that stadium again, filled with all of these people who are singing, uh, will be all right. Or at least, you know, saying that to one another on some level. And then again, I just, I think we need to pause and think about how many other stadiums are having that same kind of experience that it, that if a spiritual experience and, and how you read about it from Barbara Brown Taylor is just so much about living within the meaning and, and, um, and longings of our, of our heart and finding expression for and shape for those things, then I don't think that 
that category of spiritual only happens within certain places that have a steeple and a sign or uh, a circle of Bible studies out or whatever. I mean, our whole life is that. And I, and it sounds like to me what he's tapping into, and this is, I think, why it's important you're talking about it on this mental health episode as well, yeah. is I think that is reflective of the collective, nearly global, at least Western. I don't know about South America, Africa, Asia, as much, yeah. but certainly I know the European American environment that there is this collective angst and there's this collective crying out, uh, I would say, because I think for a variety of reasons, people don't think they're all right. And, yeah. and, and the church, there's a lot in this that I think we can, there's a lot of gold. I think there's a lot of just gold that we can mine out of that idea of how do you take, I think, what Styles has rightly cultivated in an environment and then have the ability and capacity to let that inform our Christian journey where there's probably, dare I say, even a more durable, sustainable hope that's possible that Styles is pointing to that many churches may not even hardly know in terms of how to cultivate that kind of environment for people. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I think this might be a big statement, but I'm going to stand by it. (laughs) I felt, hmm, I felt more safe and more loved and more at home in that stadium where I only knew two other people than I ever have in a church building. Yeah, no, and I don't think that's unfair. I think, Again, this is probably a bigger topic than this episode, but it is going to bleed into this episode that the church is behind the scenes. The focus tends to be on, and I've given a bazillion sermons in my life and sermons almost always follow the same pattern of identifying what is wrong and then exhorting people towards what is right. And And that, like, I understand that and I sympathize with it on some level. And I think that those things are important. But if you're giving that kind of sermon within the context of people who are living lives of quiet desperation, who are struggling with who they are and where they are ready, if they're coming into that environment without a sense of certainty and hope, then they're going to hear that con- that message, which is week in and week out, as nothing more than how deficient they are and they have to try harder. Yeah. And and I so there is, I mean, we, we are invited to consistent formation of who we are to grow more deeply in the love of God and the love of others. Like that, that is the invitation. And that does mean we always have deficit in our life. But can we live within the tension of we are all right and there is deficit in our life all at the same time? Rather yeah. than say there is no deficit and I'm just gonna like, like blind myself to the fact that there isn't stuff that, you know, that I'm a bit of a zoo, but, and so you can't just pretend that there's not, but then did I didn't, does that make sense again? Like to live within both? Like, like I, I am currently all right. And I have Mm -hmm. deficit. Like I can say both of those things simultaneously. And I just don't think that we live in many environments, church or otherwise, quite frankly, that know how to hold that tension between the two. Either everything is all right and we're just fine no matter what we're doing in life or we're completely disasters and we don't measure up. And the church seems to err on the second one of those, which is you're a zoo, you don't measure up, get better, try harder, leave again. Yeah. Well, and I think part of what's so important is that he doesn't say we are all right. He says we'll be all right. No, see, that's great. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the thing. Um, 
Yeah. And even like one of his songs that he plays at every show and there's like a specific little dance called the boot scoot that everybody does with it. Um, and it's called, the song is called treat people with kindness. And that's, I mean, it's the whole song is, is basically that idea. And it's so beautiful. And he like talked about it at the end of the show as well as everybody was like, before he played his encore. Um, and he was like, as you all are leaving, like watch out for each other, help each other, make sure everybody gets home safe, like take care of each other, the whole thing. And it really is, it's like this global community that I'm like, we are all connected by the fact that we all love this music and and chose to be part of this community. And and this might be like a silly little story, but also, um, so the the merch stands are open at weird times for this. And I have never been to a concert of this scale before. So I'm really used to going to like small gigs and then you go and get like merch at the end of the show. Right. Right. Um, and so I was like, oh, whatever, I'll just go after. And the merch stands were closed because they close at like 8 p.m. or whatever. Um, but then they're open all before the show. And so I was like, oh, I didn't realize that I should have gotten my merch the day before um, or, or day of. Um, but what I had heard from a couple of different people was that the merch stands were open. And so you could go, even if you weren't going to the concert, you could still go in and buy merch and then leave. Um, and because there's like 18,000 checkpoints to like get in and yeah, to get sure. to where you're supposed to go. Um, and so the merch stand is after like the first checkpoint. So it's not like you can just waltz in and go to the concert for free. Well, like, you, there's you, no way. Yeah, you cannot trust sixty-eight thousand rabid women coming for Harry Styles. You you better Absolutely. you better have eighteen checkpoints. So actually, oh, yeah. now that I'm thinking about it, I probably felt safer in nineteen thousand angry women at the Pink concert than I do with sixty-eight thousand women coming for Harry. Well, but none of us were angry. Well, that's, that's true. But but I just feel like it would have just been like a, a wild. And we don't have the rage of like middle-aged women. <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> that's really true. That... We're not old enough yet to have that. that rage. I mean, we that's... have a lot of rage. We yeah. have a lot more rage than 21-year-old men. Um, but we don't yet have the rage of a 40-something year old woman. Yeah, that is not to be messed with, for no. sure. Okay, that's a subject for yeah. a different different episode, for sure. Okay, so yes. you're you're going through the checkpoints of the, uh, to the merch stand. Yeah, so I went down there today to go get merch. Um, and I basically get to that checkpoint that is between me and the merch. And the lady who was um, doing the security there, she was like, I can't let you through because your ticket isn't for tonight. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to get merch for this show. Because I was looking I was looking at his online store and they had merch, but it wasn't the merch that they had for the show. And so it was like, it was other stuff. It was like water bottles and CDs and whatever. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to get love on tour merch. I, I don't know what to do. Um, and I was like, I had wanted this so badly and I was so disappointed when I couldn't get it last night. And I was like, (laughs) I was on the verge of a breakdown. Um, I was like, I don't know what to do. Part of it was just because I was exhausted. Part of it was because I was really emotionally invested in this. And so we're standing there. I'm trying to figure something out. She's waving people through. And it like, it dies down for a second. Like there's a pause in between groups of people, like before the next wave comes in and and after the last wave has gone through. And she grabs my arm and she goes, go, go. Don't tell anyone who let you through. 
go and come straight back. And I was like, thank you. And I just sprinted and I went and I got a hoodie and a t-shirt and then I came right back and I was like, thanks again. And she was like, go enjoy. That's brilliant. It was such a fun experience, but it's just even stuff like that, where it's like, that is the mentality that surrounds Harry Styles and his music and his fan base and his whatever is we're all here for each other. We're all here to be kind. We're all here to be loved. Um, And we're all here to just hold each other and take care of each other and have fun. I love Um, that. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. And then you combine that with, uh, with life in Scotland is is quite different than life in the States where people just genuinely and generally live more in just sort of a common sense, friendly, non uh, policy sort of way. People just, they're just, I notice that when I go to golf courses in Scotland and some of these very high end British open courses like St. Andrews and Carnoustie and, and Royal Troon and these places, and they just, I think we actually played St. Andrews yeah, the other day. I believe the that. The 25th? Yeah. That, no, Harry Styles did like, I believe before that. his concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and they're just kind. I mean, they're just normal. It isn't so stuffy yeah. as like sort of country club golf. Well, I, so I think what I would love actually, if, if you can go back to that Barbara Brown Taylor quote mm, now, yeah. and let's just read through that whole thing again, because I think we can tease out two things from that section that relate to what you're describing is she is talking again, both about how all of life is a, a spiritual, there, there's no distinction between uh, sacred and secular. And, yeah. and all of life can be filled with these these longings that we have. And then also too, that last profound statement, and I think this can then take us into the mental health part of this mm-hmm. podcast, which is how do we live a life where we're satisfied in the present and not always living this comparative kind of life? Uh, mm-hmm. where, when you know everything is gonna be all right, then you can just be faithful in the present and you don't have to worry about all of what you're missing out on and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I would love for you to read this whole thing yeah. again, uh, those two sections that you read. Uh, one is about yeah. the spiritual religion. No, I found it. Yeah, and then the other was just about live, you know, right where you are yeah, at that yeah. moment. So go for it. Um, so I have, uh, it may be the name for a longing, for more meaning, more feeling, more connection, more life. When I hear people talk about spirituality, that seems to be what they are describing. They know there is more to life than what meets the eye. They have drawn close to this more in nature, in love, in art, in grief. They would be happy for someone to teach them how to spend more time in the presence of this deeper reality, but when they visit the places where such knowledge is supposed to be found, they often find the rituals hollow and the language antique. No one longs for what he or she already has, And yet the accumulated insight of those wise about the spiritual life suggests that the reason so many of us cannot see the red X that marks the spot is because we are standing on it. The treasure we seek requires no lengthy expedition, no expensive equipment, no superior aptitude or special company. All we lack is the willingness to imagine what we already, that we already have everything we need. The only thing missing is our consent to be where we are. My life depends on ignoring all distinctions between the the secular and the sacred, the physical and the spiritual, the body and the soul. What is saving my life now is becoming more fully human, trusting that there is no way to God apart from real life in the real world. Okay. I just think that we could read that seven more times and and just sink into that in terms of the, the shape that that gives. So let me tell you a little bit about the bonfire conversation last night. I've already alluded to it. 
in terms mm-hmm. of talking with these two young people in pastoral ministry. I think both right around 23 or 24 years old and, and pretty reflective of a lot of the young people that I either get a chance to be with or to train or to teach. And I asked them the question, because I told them, I said, you and I are doing sort of some series on mental health. And and I just said, so yeah. basically riff on that for me and the bonfire. What, what do you see? And the youth pastor in particular spoke at length about it. And he said that among the things that are fueling the mental health issues that we have right now is this comparison game. And he talked about it started in COVID. And in this case, he was referencing social media, not because social media in and of itself creates anxiety, but because people were alone in their rooms, they were locked down, they couldn't see people. And so they were alone with their thoughts. And all they could see was that everybody else's life and their perception was better Mm -hmm. than whatever their existing life is. And so so every day they were confronted, again, within their perception that the people that they were observing in their videos or on, you know, in, in social messaging, were having a better life than they were. Now, here's the thing, and then they weren't able to be in the real world to experience something different, but even in fairness, he's he said, but then even as we're in the world with one another, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people, and that, and, and we don't recognize what we have in the moment as good. We're always seeing how we're deficient and falling short, and that we don't have what the other person has. And and so yeah. I, this is just one. So again, the point of this mental health series is we kind of weave in and out of it over the weeks and months ahead is just to identify one simple thing. And that's mm-hmm. to stop playing the comparative game. And so this is the last thing that I said, and then I would love some of your comments on this. As I told him, I said, some yeah. of where that happened in my own life as a pastor was that when I would be preaching sermons, it's it's a vulnerable experience to to preach a sermon. And, yeah. and I would often come up and I didn't realize even what I was doing and how unhealthy this was, but I would come and be done with a sermon and I might ask somebody close to me. So like, how did that go? But that, mm-hmm. how did that go question is intrinsically a comparative question, meaning that you have a set of metrics that you're mm-hmm. saying, when you say, how did it go? You're implying there are sort of a, a, a set of metrics that you are either measuring up to or not measuring up to for somebody then to say it went really well. Now, there's yeah. all kinds of conversations we could have about that, but we are, I think we live so often day in and day out in, in an assessment-based culture and relationships where we are assessing ourselves compared to other people, or we're getting assessed on the job, or our spirituality is getting assessed on a Sunday morning, or you're getting assessed on your grades. And we're always asking, how did it go? How did it go? How did it go? And that was always an anxiety creating question for me. But when I would come out of the pulpit and say, instead, was I faithful? Mm-hmm. Then that was entirely different. So yeah. I, did I do what I sensed God was inviting me to do in that moment? And then that could extend into any part of the day, not just important spiritual things, but it was, was I faithful today with the people that I love? Was I faithful today in changing a diaper? Was I faithful today in being kind to somebody around me? Like it just, it just changes the equation. I have everything I need. Uh, I, I am, I'm secure in God's love in the present and the future. 
And so if that's true, was I faithful today? I didn't have any more angst, but then I wake up the next morning and I'm all filled with angst. I'm like, my life is terrible. I'm not making it. I'm behind. I'm 52. I'm almost dead. And like, I didn't do all of what I wanted to do and blah, 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 blah. You know, so we just weave in and out. I don't even know who Harry Styles is. I'm 52 and I don't know who Harry Styles is. And so... I just, I find that when I weave in and out of assessment versus faithfulness, it it just really Mm -hmm. changes so much. So I don't know, you clearly live in an assessment-based situation. I'm sure you're always comparing yourself to other people, but did that, it was just interesting as I talked with this pastor about it and he sees it with young people all the time as well. Yeah. Well, and first of all about that, I'm still in the really bizarre period of my life where like, Okay, depending on whether or not you go to college, sometimes it's like the first-ish 12 years of your life. Again, depending on where in the world you live, what you're doing, whatever, sometimes it's longer than that, um, where everything that you are doing is being graded on a regular basis. For sure. And so you are getting comparative assessment handed to you all the time. For sure you are. And I'm like super aware of the fact that in about a year, that isn't going to be what is running my life anymore. Um which I'm both really excited about and super confused about. Like, I I have no way of, like, knowing then how I'm doing, I guess, quote-unquote, in my life, um, if I'm not being handed a grade, which sounds, like, really concerning, but also I'm aware of the fact that that is what I have known for sure. Um, and, and so, and it shapes us to be in those environments, but oh yeah, I, what the one thing that then I see when people leave university all the time is that then they see what their friends are up to. And if their mm-hmm. friend has got the job that they want and they don't, or their friend got married and they didn't, you know, and they're like, yep. Oh, now I'm a loser again. And so even, you know, they're getting a D in life at that point compared to yep. their friends. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, yeah, I'm I'm in a weird spot as well where I kind of live with one foot in two totally different worlds. And one of them is the Midwestern Christian world. And one of them is the not Christian, not Midwestern world. And in, in the Midwestern Christian world, getting married by the time you're 19 or 20 is super normal. <laughs> it happens is all the time. Stunning to and me. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, I cannot imagine... The idea that I'm moving out at the beginning of July is like exciting, but also terrifying. Sure. And literally in my Google calendar, my move out date is in my Google calendar as I should not be left unsupervised. Like, <laughs> That's so funny. I do not feel like I should be an adult. I don't feel like I should be responsible for myself, much less in a lifelong commitment to another person. Yeah. And you're 21, but I meet people, like you said, are 19. Yeah. And I have to I ask, is that even legal? <laughs> I mean, it turns out yeah. to be legal, but it doesn't feel like it's legal. It feels almost biblical. It's so like weird. I know, like you could have the baby Jesus at this age right now. <laughs> is what it's, it, it's really crazy. Just unbelievable. Yeah. And so, and like, that's not to say that not all of those relationships work out. And sometimes you do meet the right person that early and you just know But also, like, that's one of those metrics where really by Christian standards, the fact that I'm 21 and I'm not involved in a church and I'm not married to a worship pastor means that I'm a failure, especially since I'm not even, like, pregnant with our first child at this point. I'm I'm disappointed by that for sure. I have failed at Christian life. um, (laughs) You have. Which is just so bizarre to me. Whereas here in Edinburgh, like, I have friends who are 26 and they're still in school or... I have friends who dropped out of school when they were 16 and have been working 
like minimum wage jobs since then. And, and that's considered normal here. Like both, both of those are, and then also being married at 19 or being married at like what early fifties is also those two things are both super normal here. And part of what I love about the like life in Edinburgh is that there's not one right way to do life, which I feel like is something that isn't often the case in Midwestern Christianity. I feel like there are timelines and there are milestones that if you don't hit those by a certain age, then you are losing in the lap three Mario Kart where like the music gets faster and you start getting really stressed. It like, it feels like that. And I feel like I'm coming up on those milestones and then I come here and I'm like, oh, nobody knows what's going on. We're all just kind of doing our own thing. And, and whatever path you end up on, um, oh gosh, where did the quote go? It, it, it's Barbara Brown Taylor again. Um, and it was in the, I won't have the quote pulled up now cause it was in the PDF that we read, not in the physical copy of the book that I have, but she, she's talking about vocation at one point And she was like, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to be doing? And the response that she heard from God was do whatever that, do whatever it is that pleases you and belong to me. I love that. And I feel like that's what I'm trying to do right now. Like I, and, and I think this ties into, Ooh, okay. I'm going to back it up and expand it even a little bit more and then bring it back to that quote. This is my three point sermon. I love it. Good. Yep. Um, definitely my daughter. Oh, thank you. Um, (laughs) but when I was in middle school and then through early high school, well, really when I was in grade school through early high school, um, I was in dance. I did dance for 10, 11 years, I think. Um, and for a while it was really fun and really good and really healthy. And then around the time that I was, I think, 11 or 12, I started really aggressively comparing myself to the other girls in my class. Here we go again. Um, Because I was not as tall or as strong or as flexible or as pretty or as skinny and didn't feel like I looked right in the leotard and tights. I couldn't lift my leg above my head. I didn't have the splits. I couldn't do eight turns in 30 seconds. Like, it... And I was watching my friends move up in levels, and and I was staying exactly where I was. And there was a part of me that knew that it was because I wasn't willing... To sacrifice my schoolwork. I wasn't willing to sacrifice my family. I wasn't willing to sacrifice my friendships or my social life or my rest time in order to be as good as they were. But it didn't stop that embarrassment. For sure. Every time that we were warming up in class and I'm the only girl who doesn't get the splits. Like, yeah. And and I think every, like I, the rawness of that story, I think Anna is something that again I I just don't know many environments in which we find ourselves that we can talk about these sorts of things, and so we just have to live in and stew within all of them. I can't even tell you how many yeah. times I've had similar kinds of experiences, whether as a baseball player 
or and and even on the flip side of it, how it's insidious when you do well on the comparative. So uh, people are certainly wounded by the fact that they're not doing well in the comparative game, like, right. But it's also really insidious when you in theory are doing well in the comparative game. I remember when I was hired in my late twenties to be a pastor in a fairly large church of, of three, four, 5,000 people to be part of that team. And I was in seminary at the time. And I'll tell you what, when we would sit in our four hour classes on Monday nights, inevitably in a four hour class, you would have some small group time and you'd get a chance to introduce yourself and what you're doing. And here's where that insidious part came in is I almost couldn't wait until it would come around to me because, you know, we would start with Joe and Joe would be like, well, I just got my first internship in central Minnesota. It's uh, it's 10 hours a week. It's a starting point. Uh, I mean, the average age of the congregation is 164 and I, you know, I'm bringing donuts and I'm delivering things and all of that. And he's like, and this is a great starting point. And they're like, oh, it's great to meet you, Joe. And then it kind of go around and I couldn't kind of wait to be then the measure of the small group because I'd be like, oh, well, you know, my name is Peter. And then I could play the fake Christian humility card uh, to start talking a little quieter and say, well, you know, I've been working on the pastoral staff of blah, blah, blah church and it's 5,000 people and and I'm training leader, blah, blah. And it's just, and and so as good as that might feel in the moment and as intoxicating as that might be, it is really detrimental to the soul because it's still not the question Am I being faithful? It's the question, um, uh, am I succeeding according to, I'm not sure what metrics. And if you are, it's still bad for your soul because you're still beholden to stupid metrics that are somewhat arbitrary and certainly not kingdom. And that, so I think we all have stories where we don't measure up, but it isn't any healthier when we are measuring up with if that's the way we understand our lives. Because I'll tell you what, when you do measure up and you are, in that place, if you feel like you have arrived, then it's this constant scramble to stay arrived uh, before you, and then the next thing you know, you're, you're falling down the mountain again, and then people can't recover, and I'm a failure, and it's just, it's all the wrong question at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was what I was going to say about the about the scramble, because in terms of areas where I was not very successful, dance was one of them. Um, and and I was not a bad dancer, but I was just not the best. And that was not something that I was okay with at that time. Um, in, in my early teens, um, shockingly, I was not okay with not being the best. Yeah. Right. Um, Well, and parents, I think from a good intention, tell their kids off and you are so good at this. You're so good. Like, and, and, and those are good things to say. But then if you're not careful, you can breed into your kids that, they love the excitement of having parents say how good they are at something. And so then they don't want us to come yeah. home and say, I couldn't do the splits because they're not the parent. Yeah. You know, then you get the patronizing. Well, that's okay. You just got to keep, you know, blah, right. I mean, it, there's just mm-hmm. no win in that scenario. Yep. Absolutely. And like, and then to even hear the mentality of like, oh, but you will get it someday and be like, okay, but I've been dancing for 10 <laughs> years and I still don't have my splits. So right. when is someday? Right. Um, But yeah. And then even just in terms of areas where, like I have been successful. I've been very successful in my academic career. For sure you have. Um, but it it is that scramble at the end of the day because then I come in and I I set the standard for myself and for my like my professors know what to expect of me. And then I sit there and I'm like, so if I don't keep just driving myself into the ground over this, th- these standards are gonna slip and and I'm not gonna be the best and I'm not gonna be excelling anymore. Um, 
And I think especially in a, in a day and age where everything is so competitive, like the idea of not being the best at something is, it can be really scary. For sure. Um, And so like something that I have been learning over this last semester, really not necessarily over the last school year, it hasn't even been that recent. Um, But sometimes in, in the last semester, I'll look at an assignment and I'll just be like, no, I'm not doing it. I don't have it in me today. I'm not doing it. Um, or I, I won't go to class and I'll take a mental health day and I'll do what I got to do for that. Um, and I still, I get my work done and I can push through when I have to, but I'm not like killing myself over my grade anymore. Um, have my grades dropped because of that a little? Yeah. Um, but it is this idea of of what Barbara Brown Taylor is talking about, where she says, do whatever pleases you and belong to me. And I'm like, this doesn't please me. This doesn't fulfill me. And sitting here and like, I don't know, engaging in that insane scramble is so exhausting. And, it, and it's landed me in burnout so many times that just eventually it's not worth it anymore. Um, and, and and then something that you and I were talking about earlier um, with the, it's much harder to like look a real person in the face and not play that comparison game than it is to look at your phone screen <laughs> and not play the comparison game um, is that then when I'm sitting there and I'm watching all of my classmates get internships and take on big projects and get big jobs and network and and do all of the things that you're supposed to do to set yourself up for a successful life. And I'm kind of derping around in the corner, like doing what I got to do to get through the semester. It It's hard to look at that and be really aware of the fact that I can't have both. And And maybe some people can. But I am not at a place in my life where I can have stable mental health and a sense of peace and a sense of belonging to God and also be successful. Well, I think, and I think what's so profound about all of that, and again, let's just like even nuance the word successful by saying that successful by a certain set of metrics that have been superimposed upon us that then we're always trying to live up to and and we don't. Right. And, and so I can say from my angle then at 52, so a little more than 30 years older than you is that I live then in the environment in which many, many, many people have been at least moderately successful by those metrics. And some people haven't, but here's the crazy thing about it is that I know very few people who are comfortable in their own skin in my generation, whether yeah. they have been successful by those metrics or not successful by those metrics, it doesn't matter. They aren't comfortable in their own skin. A lot of marriages are really hurting. A lot of people are super uncomfortable with themselves. Um, depression and anxiety and suicide is like going way up in my generation. And that includes, I I just, I know a story of someone recently that 
outside looking in would have been so successful by all of these metrics that uh, to get a house and a family and a good job and and not worry about where food's going to come from and blah, 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 and, and be respected in your career and all of these sorts of things. Yeah. And, and that person just took his own life in his 50s. And I yeah. hear those stories so often. And so, I, you know, the pressure that you're feeling and living in the waters in which we swim of this comparative assessment culture continues to play itself out. And it doesn't, you can be successful by all those metrics and you still aren't, there's not a sense of peace and shalom in who you are related to it. And so I think what you, what Barbara Brown Taylor said so well, but you said it as well. How did she say that about belonging, do what you love, but belong to me? Is that how she said that? Yeah, she says, do whatever it is that pleases you and belong to me. Well, and I think then, like, how do you get off the comparative assessment culture? Because you can't live in both yeah. worlds. You said it so well. You just simply, like, I think one starting point, it's not the starting point, but one starting point to, to bringing some wholeness back to life and some non-crazy back to life is mm-hmm. to just not just say, well, I'm going to not care about, I'll keep doing the assessment thing, but maybe I just won't care about it as much. You just have to fully reject it. You, ha- you have yeah. to just say, this is not the jam. And it doesn't mean I don't want to be a person of it. You want to write a novel and you want your novel to be a really good novel. But, yeah, I do. But that novel being a good novel if it's coming from the standpoint of you belong to God and so you're being faithful with what God has given you to do in this world, that's really different than writing a good novel so that you can compare it to Maggie Stevie Water or whatever her, her, <laughs> sorry. I just, I have to bring that up every so often. I wish people that are I listening right now could see your right. face. I, that's uh, the thing. Maggie uh, Stevie Water. Yeah. Steve Otter. I got it. Okay. And also about, sorry, Stevie, when you said Stevie, that made me think of something. Also at the concert last night, we sang happy birthday to Stevie Nicks. I love it. Harry Styles is friends with. Yeah. yeah. She wasn't there. Um, Who cares? Stevie Nicks is epic. Um, But yeah, we sang happy birthday to Stevie Nicks last night. It was amazing. That's so brilliant. But yeah, so I, I, I don't know that I hadn't heard that quote and I'm so glad that you read it, Mm -hmm. but it is consistent with what we talked about last night that the way to shalom is to start with, I belong to God and am I being faithful in that day? Um, and, and it isn't even like, then you were faithful, so you're fine, because that would be the wrong metrics. You belong to God and yeah. therefore it's going to be okay. Like in the, yeah. lang- in, in the Harry Styles song, it's going to be okay. You belong to God. And so then the only thing that you concern yourself with the day is, was I faithful? And then what does faithful look like? Well, it's just doing the things that God has put in front of you. And oftentimes it's loving other people. Well, oftentimes it's what I did this morning and last night, sit on our front porch. We have baby Robins up in a nest on our front porch and just enjoying the beauty of that. And it can be then changing a diaper and it can be a a quiet life where somebody who's on the accessible train looks at you and says, wow, you're not doing so great, but <laughs> but I would hazard to guess that maybe they aren't doing so great, and that's why they're even making the statement themselves. So there's a lot in all of this, but I think just getting off that assessment train is the first thing, and living a life of belonging to God first. I, I sure wish we could belong to other people as easily as we can belong to God, it seems like, and that's a subject for another time. Like, How do we then have a relational environment of people with whom we're hanging that goes beyond 68,000 people in a stadium saying it to each other, but what would it look like to be in, in a group of eight, 16, 24, 30 people who also have that vibe with one another in, in a belonging to God sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think part of it too, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, and then I had a much longer conversation about it with 
with mom the other day where um, just the idea of stopping and of sabbathing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think we've talked about this maybe on the podcast yet. Maybe we have, um, but just the idea of that the first experience that humankind had in the garden of Eden was of Sabbath. Right. Um, right. that was the first day it wasn't, it wasn't working. It was resting, um, and resting as in stopping and being in relationship with God and with each other. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting is that as far as I'm aware, and I'm willing to be wrong on this, but as far as I'm aware, the first two things that are considered holy, which we talked about in our last episode, as like set apart, quote unquote, or sanctified, um, is humankind and the Sabbath. Those are the first two things that are set apart, that are called holy. Um, and I just think that's so important. And And part of what I have realized about this trip now that I'm here, I didn't really realize it before I left, um, is that since moving back home last May, I have not Sabbathed. Um, and, and even if I've had days where I haven't had anything going on, I I haven't had an extended period of intentional rest um and that has been really hard (laughs) um and so for the remainder of my time here like I'm here until the end of June and the only two things or I guess I have three things because I'm joining you guys briefly for a, a family vacation um and then coming back here but but the only two other things that I have like set on the schedule for my time in Edinburgh are coffee with my friends. And other than that, I have a whole month ahead of me of absolutely nothing. And like, I woke up this morning, I slept until noon cause I woke up at nine and I was like, actually I'm exhausted and I need to go back to bed. And so I, I slept until noon and then I got up and I was like, well, I guess I'll wander down and see if I can get some merch and then I was like, I guess we'll record a podcast episode today. But like, I have done next to nothing today except for lie on my bed and read and write and listen to music. And it has been so good. Like, I have done nothing productive today, but I have rested. And and that is so important. And I get to do the same thing tomorrow and the day after that. And it's it's such a blessing to get to take that time to stop even though i know i'm sacrificing money that i would be making by working at my job i'm sacrificing time with you guys at home i'm sacrificing the productivity of the schoolwork that i should be prepping for for my stupid summer class i like I'm making sacrifices by choosing to carve out time to stop. And I'm aware of the fact that those sacrifices are not small. But the peace and the joy that I have had here in the last week is staggering. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like a completely different person. Yeah, for sure. Well, and and I stopped, as you know, for the first time in 20 years um, where I'm not teaching 
this semester and I am looking forward to going back in the fall. But I'll tell you what, Anna, by the time I stopped after 20 years, I was being driven often, I think, by really healthy things, you know, wanting wanting to to help in in God's kingdom. But I also, you know, there's other things you're not that you're you're driven in unhealthy ways, like this phrase falling behind. And anytime you stop, that's one of the first things that I think crashes into our soul is, well, if I stop, I'll be falling behind. And and it's such a lie because now we're back on that accessible metric train. You're falling behind of what exactly? And and I can't think of too many times in my life where I was ever ahead. I don't ever say, you know what, I'm way ahead. And that, yeah, I, it just we're, we live in this falling behind kind of mentality, and that does prevent us from stopping. But I think if we stop, and maybe this is the last part that we can we can circle back to that really does pull it all together today. I think when we stop, that when you start with what Barbara Brown, what Taylor was saying again with, no, it just like, I'm going to stop and remind myself that I belong to God, that that's going to be like in the stopping, if that's all I do. So then whatever his metrics are for me are going to be good and healthy and shalom based and peace giving. And it doesn't mean it's absence of work. God, you know, we have vocation in this world underneath God's direction, but that's a whole different peaceful thing. Like we don't, fall behind then. We don't get comparative with other people. We don't all of that kind of stuff. We, When we stop, I think we can just say, okay, no, take a breath. I belong to God. Everything is going to be all right. And I think that's what style so beautifully points to in that description that you said of 68,000 people singing to each other, we're going to be all right. Like take yeah. that and then attach that idea dare I say, to a God of an eternal kingdom who who is in the process of reconciling everything back to himself, then when we stop, we say, I belong to God. It is going to be all right. Uh, I only just want to do that which is in front of me that he's inviting me into versus all of this insanity of, of all of what we think we're missing out on in the comparative game. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the big lies in like Modern Western culture, specifically in American culture, um, is where I've seen it the most, is the idea of, oh, but you just need to take some time to relax. You just need some take some take some me time. You just need to have a little vacation. Um, you just need to rest for a little bit or take a mental health day or whatever. But alongside those messages is the implication that that isn't going to cost you anything. Um, or that you should be able to do all of that and still be successful by those same metrics. And, and what I have found is that it is a sacrifice. It resting and taking care of yourself. Like I, I really can't have both. It, it is a sacrifice to rest and to belong to God and to take care of my body and to reject those standards of success. Um, and it's, it's not something that I can do for 12 hours or a day or two days or a week and have my little vacation and then come back and jump right back into everything. Like I, I can't do that and I'm choosing rest. And it means that I won't I won't get some of the things in life that other people might have, but I'm choosing what I want and I'm learning how to be okay with that. 
Well, it's a sacrifice either way, right? I mean, either you you yeah. generally speaking sacrifice your soul if you don't ever do what you're describing yeah. and and you wake up one day and think what was that all about? Uh even if you did succeed momentarily and the it, like by those metrics, um but then you realize, well, <laughs> it's life like at 52 I realize life's a bit of a vapor and so you can yeah. have sacrificed relationships along the way sacrificed your children along the way. You can sacrifice, you know, just the, the beauty and wonder of the world. And again, sacrifice your health and your soul. So pick, pick you know, I, I would rather sacrifice all of that. I would rather sacrifice feeling like I was super productive according to all of this weird comparative stuff uh, and be healthy in my soul because I know I belong to God. And then honestly, it what you end up doing in life just simply takes on a whole different meaning. Uh, it, it, you just don't have to be doing X, Y, Z in order to have a significant life. Your life of significance comes from a very different place. So I think I, I hope that's helpful, like for all of us to really be thinking about, right? Like just reject the comparative game, get off of it. And that, then that's not the only thing that will help stir the waters of the anxiety and depression that we live in. But it is one thing for sure, I think that can help calm some of those waters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know that I have more to say about that. I don't either. I everything for me. The thing that I will say is that I would like to start a new bit now moving forward. Okay. In a segment of our show. Yeah. In which we listen to two or three Harry Styles songs in the week leading up. Okay. And then you give your reviews of them. Okay. At the beginning of each episode. We're starting your education right now. Okay. <laughs> I will yield to, to your teaching ability on Harry Styles music, but so I, cause I, I can't, I said, I wanted by the end of this podcast to be able to name a Harry Styles song. And I forgot the song that we at least it's, there was something about a Bishop wasn't there along the way. What was Bishop's this? Gate. Bishop's, Bishop's gate, gate led in us, Hollywood. and led us to the name of a song. What was the name of the song? Late night talking. Late night talking. Okay. Well, next time on Deeper Magic, I will have my first Terry Styles song on which I can comment. I'm so glad things are going well for you in Edinburgh. I know we'll pick this up again next week. We'll probably take a week off when we are doing a family vacation uh, yep. together. And then we have uh, some fun series coming up too. I'm going to start and hopefully you can join too. I'm going to start recording a series on postmortem opportunity with a friend of mine who wrote a book on that subject. And uh, I think that's going to be fun. Uh, as well. But have a great rest yeah. of the time in Edinburgh. And I know we'll be chatting all throughout the weekend. Yeah, it's been good to talk. I'm glad we got to do this. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Deeper Magic. This uh, I'm Peter, and this is my daughter, Anna. Say bye, Anna. Bye, Anna. We'll catch you guys soon. Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0, viewable on the site as well. Mm-hmm.